mercy that will flow in our direction to help in this time of endless distress. Oh, what a faithful God we have. I come to share with you about the saving work of God amongst the ongoing COVID global pandemic. It's my fault to keep this update in suspense. Uh, May I take time now to tell you um, that I am uh, personally touched beyond words for whatever you have done for our ministry. Thank you so much. And then he gives a couple points here. He says, since lockdown in March 2020, the Lord has been so faithful to our family, seminary, and church. Psalm 66 says, come and see what the Lord has done, what God has done, how awesome his works in man's belief. First, he says, in the month of March, we lost a family doctor due to COVID-19. As was mentioned in the earlier update, as time passes, many people from our church are stranded and went through financial shortage, food, and drastically uh, lost their jobs and careers. As of today, half of our people have left Delhi, returning to their survival in the mountains. Uh, about 40 to 50% church members have left also for home due to the pandemic crisis. Besides our seminary, Professor and his family was badly affected by the current virus. My, my wife uh, got multiple cases recently for doctors or for hospitals and doctors. It's a business time to take uh, money from the patients. It's unfortunate. But we praise God for a mission he has left us and to accomplish this mission. He has been protecting us from all harms and dangers so that we can preach his word faithfully in all times. Secondly, I want to thank God for allowing me to minister to a brother who was a believer when he actually was not saved and lived under unclean life. He was afraid of dying, and the Lord brought COVID-19 just in time to save his life. Likewise, an atheist sister who is doing research in Delhi University is accepting Christ, and she is looking forward for water baptism. During the ongoing virus fest, God opened door for me to marry a young couple. They originally planned to get married in Thailand, and they, posted, they postponed it twice um, because of the virus, uh, but finally they were caught at Jesus' feet after going through marriage counseling classes, and I gladly married them in the presence of both families. Uh, Thirdly, he says, a brother from a Hindu background got married a few days before lockdown. The wife is pretty pretty strong in faith. I baptized her husband after being converted uh, in our church. He is an engineering businessman. They now are serving the Lord and doing their church duty faithfully with us and will be uh, the strong uh, family for our church, be a strong family for our church. Fourthly, he says, uh, serving with risk is the only option we have had by the events of the past four months. Every day is a chance to begin a new beginning no matter what and how the past is. Three times we did food food distribution, groceries, medicine, and financial assistance. And here's some pictures to show you. He says uh, we did food distributions for the non-believers first. That's interesting. And we did twice for the stranded people in our church and in our church members. We gave uh, financial help of our seminary students who have left for their homeland. Uh, Coincidentally, it's a summer break for our seminary, so we don't uh, regret in sending them away. Very sadly, they are still under quarantine at several districts. It's already been more than a month, and the virus is rapidly spreading among themselves as they share common toilets and 
rooms. No proper PPE and testing kits are available to us. Uh, we are afraid that a fourth stage of community spread may soon happen. You can see them giving out all these food. Um, we also gave financial assistance to some pastors and ministry workers whom we closely are associated with. They were all running short of family support desperately as the churches were unable to pay their honorariums. Yes, the church income was affected severely by the pandemic crisis, and this includes some of our graduate brothers who are also pastoring in their respective role uh, local, in their local churches. Uh, long story short, <laughs> he goes, we are doing, we are doing a, normal, a new normal life, reaching out and counseling through phone calls, worship, Bible study services, through uh, media such as Zoom, What's Up, Instagram. Relief projects for the poor and needy are ongoing, uh, and we serve, uh, we have given away uh, many um, pounds of rice, potatoes, onions, salt, oil, sugar, hand sanitizer, etc. Helping the standard, uh, the stranded families and students um, straying outside of the homeland spiritually and, moral, uh, and morally, finally helping the local church and quarantine centers. How many people or families have we touched was beyond words according to the gracious hand of God through the relief um, and the, the funding that we have. All these unique stories became very evident to us and our tools and experiences and we shall continue to apply it in order to touch with more lives in the near future. A couple praise points, he says, with um, many laborers have returned to the respective native places due to COVID-19. Our ministry laborers uh, reminds us of the progress to the seminary building. They're new, building a new seminary building. And with the help of my cousin, who's a businessman, we were able to get permission to transport the materials. Uh, check out the pics below, and uh, we praise the Lord for the work he's doing there. And so uh, one other prayer point, he says, one brother um, amongst them is on a uh, dialysis routine, and unfortunately he's found to be COVID positive and was transferred to his village. I guess they just send them back to their village when they're, they're positive. Um, there's not a lot of care there. Uh, it's hard to have doctors' uh, last word on this case. We have trusted him on t- into the Lord's hands. Also, his wife has had multiple, uh, uh, I guess, kidney stones, and um, she's having to deal with that. And with the COVID and everything, it's hard to get the surgery and all that. So they're, they're dealing with all that. But we want to continue to pray for Pastor Theo and the ministry over there in India as we uh, continue to support them. And we did um, send them some funds, and we'll be sending them some, some, more, some more funds as uh, they're, they're in need and they're ministering among the folks there. Well, let's pause and pray for Pastor Theo and those who are serving in India. Father, we thank you for those of us um, who have had the experience of meeting Pastor Theo and seeing his ministry. And Lord, we, we pray uh, that we would be able to continue to support him financially and prayerfully, Lord, more than anything, Lord, that you would use uh, this time in their lives to draw them closer and closer to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would strengthen them in every way possible. Father, that you would uh, cause your grace to shine upon them. And Lord, bless them as they're, they're faithful to you. And we just entrust them into your hands and your care. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to continue. I don't know how far we'll get, but we'll continue uh, in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
And uh, we, last week, we looked at the roles of um, men and women within the church, and we covered uh, quite a bit, actually. We got up to the third point, the relationship of his husband, of a husband to his wife, and we <clears throat> looked at the text, and we were talking about how the different words in the original language there really give us clarity. And so many people read our text and they just use the word uh, man and, and woman and, and it should be really rendered husband and wife, as I showed you last week. But let's read the text out of 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11 and then we'll pick up where we uh, left off uh, last week. Paul writes there in verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remembered me in everything and maintained the traditions, even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her head be covered. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for women, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in, in the Lord, women is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. And we talked about last week, as we read through those, that there's a colossal mistake people make here, and they conclude that, well, this teaches that all women are submissive to all men. And unfortunately, they don't get that right. Nowhere is that taught in the Scripture. Uh, What's taught in the Scripture is that a man has a role, a woman has a role in life and even in the local church. And so we found out that last week when we were going through this, if you translate this word man for husband, which is always translated that way, when uh, the wife, the word for wife, translated wife, if you translate them that way in this context, it makes a lot more sense. It's talking about a husband and a wife. It's not talking about all men and all women. And you can go back and hear the message from last week, but we pretty much dialed down on that and uh, made it very clear that when the Greek word 
for man in this text, anur is used, you have to translate the word for women, wife. And so that's where we left off last week. We looked basically at the recognition of Paul's example, the realization of Paul's exhortations, and the relationship of a husband to his wife. And we pointed out that basically there's a couple things there. The First of all, the imperative of the head of the husband being Christ. The, hu- the husband is called to be submissive to Christ and Christ alone. He is the head. But then we looked at the importance of a wife's submission to her husband. Because the Bible teaches, whether you like this or not, this is what it teaches. I'm just here to tell you what it teaches. It teaches that, as we read, that uh, man was not created for woman, but woman was created for man. And, you know, when you follow that reasoning, all this makes sense. And it's not like women are lesser value than men. That's not what he's saying. They're all God's creation. But there's a role that each one plays. And so we looked at the importance of the wife's submission to her husband, to her own husband. And we basically said that there's nowhere in Scripture that it says that a woman should be submissive to all men. That's very dangerous if you go down that road. And then thirdly, we looked at the illustration of submission, and he says the head of Christ is God. And we talked about how when Christ, the Lord Jesus, was here on heaven or here on earth, he didn't do whatever he wanted to do, right? He, he was in submission to his Father's will. He said several times, not my will, but thine be done. Uh, he came to do not his will, but his Father's will. And so he gave an example of himself of what submission looks like. And so we concluded basically last week that um, a wife is to be submissive to her own husband. But this text is not teaching that all women are submissive to all men, nor is it really teaching that all women should wear a hat in church. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that we are called to be submitted, submissive to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we have to... Unfortunately, people have taken this the wrong way in so many different texts, and they've made, you know, um, the, the woman the you know, stomping ground of the man. <laughs> and that's just not the way the Bible renders that. And so today we come to the, the fourth point in the outline there, the reasons for this instruction. In other words, why is Paul telling them this? Why is this so important? Well, there's four reasons here, and like I said, I don't know how how many we'll get through, but we'll try our best because we still have communion to do. But why did he tell them this? Well, first, first here, first reason is public dishonor. Look at what it says here in verses 4 to 6. 4 to 6. He says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now remember, who's his head? Christ. But every wife, some translations say women, it should say wife, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered dishonors her head. And who's her head? Her husband. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if the wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her head be covered. So she points out here, or he points out here very a couple things, a couple words for you. First of all, we have to remind ourselves of the culture in which this was written, 
right? You can get in a lot of trouble when you start pulling verses out of their context in which they were written. And that happens all the time with people. They go back and they don't understand the context in which a verse was written. And so they'll say, well, the Bible says this. Well, it doesn't say that in the context. You have to look at it in its context. So the first word there in your outline is culture. Now, it's, it's interesting because when you stop and you think of the Jewish culture, all right, they wear a head covering, don't they? The men. Have you ever seen them in their synagogues? They wear what they call kippah. They have that, that thing on their head. And what's interesting, when you look at history, there's no evidence whatsoever coming from the first century that Jewish men wore anything on their head, ever. That's just what history tells us. And there's one possibility. Some people believe that you know, they would wear what they call a prayer shawl, and you know, they'd wear it on their shoulders, and sometimes when they'd pray, they'd lift it and put it up over their head. But that's the only evidence there is. There's no evidence that Jesus ever wore a head covering. Um, there was no... Uh, keep us worn even in Judaism, until the Middle Ages. That's when they started that tradition. It's a man-made tradition. As a matter of fact, the evidence scripturally is really to the contrary. It seems that a man who covered his head was a dishonor. There's evidence in historical records that men who covered their heads were offensive. Some records indicate that they were usually, listen to this, homosexuals. They were making a statement. Men who covered their heads were offensive to the Greeks. They were offensive to the Romans back in the culture. And remember, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to evangelize, right? So he's trying to reach out to all these different kinds of people. Remember, he says, I want to become all things to all men so that I can reach some for the glory of God. Now, on the other hand, married women back in that culture would always have their head or their face. They'd usually wear a veil of some sort. They would have themselves covered. That's just culturally what they did. They still do it over there today, do they not? You know, if you walk around Dubai, you go to um, any of those places, you see women, and all you see is their eyes. You're thinking, what what do they look like? I mean, that's what I think. You know, why they cover themselves up? What do they look like? Well, what's interesting is that's exactly why this tradition started. Okay? And it was married women who would wear this veil when they went out in public. Why? It was a sign that they were married. It was a sign, basically, that said, you know what? I'm not on the market. (laughs) I'm not available. I'm married. Don't look at me. In Orthodox Judaism, even in Islamic circles today, they still use that kind of covering. And their heads, usually their faces as well, are covered when they're in public, especially when they're married. And back in the day, that was just, as a matter of fact, if we could transport our church right here this morning back to that time, those of you who are sitting here who are married right now, you would have a veil on, without a doubt if you had any kind of character at all. Because if you didn't wear a veil, what were you saying? You were saying, hey, I'm available. Now, the single women didn't have to wear a veil. Why? 
because they wanted people to know they were available, right? They, hey, I'm, I'm not married yet. You know, I'm, I'm on the market. And so the culture of that day in Corinth, this Roman-Greek culture, um, for women was wear a veil if you're married. Don't wear any head covering if you're a man, period. Um, one step further here, especially in the time, in, in the town we're talking of, Corinth, we've talked about what a, 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 a loose society it was. What was. What's interesting is when you look back in the history, most all of the prostitutes shaved their heads back then. That's what they would do. And you're, you're, you're thinking, well, because they wanted people to know that they were available. <laughs> That's what they would do. And so they would shave their head. And, you know, culturally, we don't necessarily understand that. It doesn't relate to us today, but that's what they did. And so you can understand what Paul is saying here is even more powerful. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying if you're not going to cover your head as a wife, you might as well just shave your head. Just be like one of the prostitutes. And he's using a strong overstatement, as Paul always did, right? I mean... We're going to get to a chapter where he says, if I had all knowledge, if I had all love, if... he doesn't. He's just making an overstatement to prove a point. Whenever you talk to someone of the Jewish culture, a lot of times they'll talk that way. You know, there's big grandiose statement. You say, wait, is that really? Well, it's, you know, it's close enough. You know, they're, they're making an overstatement to make their point. And that's exactly what Paul was doing here. He's saying, Wives, if you're not going to be willing to cover your head, then you might as well just shave it because you're acting like a woman of the street. Now, single women didn't have to wear a veil at all. Why? Because they wanted to know, they wanted the society to know that they were available for marriage. And when a married woman took a veil off in public, or their covering, their face covering off, they were actually called an adulterous woman. It didn't matter whether they did anything or not. They just classified them that way. So it was very much an action of shame. You would just never do it if you were married. You would never even think about it. And that's the culture of that day. Whether we like it or relate to it or not, that's really what existed. Now, some people say, well, that's not our culture today. But I think that we could all agree that we could use a little more decorum and maybe a little more appropriateness in the way that we address husbands and wives. And so... We have to look at the culture. Secondly, we have to look at the context. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. What's this Paul's bringing up? What do you mean, praying and, and prophesying, or it's the same word for preaching? I thought women weren't allowed to preach. Well, we covered that a little bit last week. The Bible doesn't really say that. Um, the Bible has a role for men in the church. That's to be the elders and the pastors of the church. It's wrong to make a woman an elder or a pastor. That would be um, impossible because they're, they're called to be the husband of one wife. So um, in, in the proper understanding of marriage, maybe not the understanding we have today in our society, but the proper understanding, the biblical understanding of marriage, one man, 
one woman for life. Um, elders have to be the husband of one wife. And so you couldn't open that up by any means to women to serve in that capacity. But there are places for women to serve within the church. And some of those places include praying and teaching. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we, we talked about that in depth last week. And usually they go to the passage that we talked about, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 34-35, or, or 1 Timothy 2.12. And once again, it's the same thing in the original language. The word for women is just a generic word for women. You have to define it by the word that's used for man. And the word that's used for man there um, is the word that relates to a wife. So it's talking about husbands and wives. As a matter of fact, there were women prophets in the Bible. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, in Acts chapter 21, verse 9, Let me read this for you. It says, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, and we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day, on the next day we departed, and we came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. So you have an evangelist. His name was Philip. And he was one of seven, it says. And we stayed with him. And then verse 9 of Acts 29, it says, He had four unmarried daughters. Guess what they did? They prophesied. They preached. And that word prophesied, just so you understand, it doesn't mean you're telling something in the future. It's not that kind of prophecy. It's basically you're foretelling the word of God. Every time you witness to somebody, every time you go out and you proclaim the word of God to someone, you're prophesying. And so the point of the passage is not that women should not teach or preach or pray. Clearly, they're allowed to do that. There should be decorum in church. It shouldn't turn into a crazy frenzy like it did in Corinth where everybody was just popping off or how it happens a lot of times in the the charismatic movement of today where you go to a church and they have this craziness going on. There's people running around, falling on the floor, and people are shouting and speaking in tongues, and women are singing different things. It's just chaos. That's not what we're called to do when we enter the Lord in worship. God is a God of order. That's not very orderly-like. And so the people who concluded that, the idea that, you know what, women should never teach or preach or say anything in church, are the same people that fail to distinguish that understanding in the original Greek language. And they never, by the way, in their uh, commentaries, as you read through, if they conclude that, they never go back and say, well, this word for um, man is different than the general, they never address that, because maybe they don't know, or maybe they do, I don't know. But there's no passage that teaches that all women should be submissive to all men. So we have a third word here. We have culture, context, and then we have concern. Concern. He says, But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, in other words, it brings shame in that it violates the relationship of the husband and wife. And you can understand, if the reason they were covered in the first place was because they were married, all right, if, if her and her husband went downtown and she said, you know, I'm going to take my veil off, he'd say, well, wait a minute, what are you thinking? You can't do that. People are going to think I'm, I'm with, with, with somebody that's not married. You're, you're advertising that you're not married. And so it's that kind of dishonor. And when a woman would think that she could minister, or she could pray or do anything without her veil, especially if it's in front of a group of people, 
I mean, every man in the audience would be looking at her going, whoa, she's, yeah, she's available. She's up there teaching. She doesn't have a veil on. Maybe I'll talk to her after the service. And it leads them down the wrong path. It's being deceptive because she, she is married. She should have a veil on. That's how they advertise that. It's kind of like, I mean, if you wanted to relate it to our modern day thing, it's kind of like our wedding rings, right? I mean, we leave our wedding rings off. I talked to a guy one time. He goes, yeah, when I go on business trips, you know, I, I leave it home. I leave the wedding ring home. I don't want to lose it. I'm like, whoa, what? That's probably not a good idea. Why? Because you're advertising you're not married. Even in, you know, as liberal as our culture is today. You know, having a ring on your finger designates that you're spoken for, you're taken. And so that was the concern. And the fourth word here, culture, context, concern, comparison of the uncovering the head and the shaving and having the head shaved. It seems very extreme. I mean, to us, when we think of this, it's like, well, they take their veil off, they have to shave their whole head. But that's how they talk. That's how they dealt with things. Um, what I thought was funny, the Talmud speaks of a woman, a woman with a shaved head as being extremely ugly. That's what it says. It says women with shaved heads are extremely ugly. Now, that may not be politically correct today, you know, but that's what they believed back then. Even in the first century, uh, or in, in church history, Christendom, who didn't have a whole lot of things to, positive to say about Jews, he did say that a, a woman who committed adultery should have her head shaved as the prostitutes did. See, so there was, there was Paul was pointing this out, that, you know what, you've got to be careful about how you present yourself as a believer. And so we see here, first of all, the aspect of public dishonor. Then we see original design, verses 7 to 9. Let's move forward here. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. Now, that's not saying that women are not created in the glory of God. They are the image of God. All humans are created in the glory of God. But what was the original design here? What was the plan? See, the plan of God is for a wife to reflect her husband's character. That's the idea. Her husband's attitudes. That's why it says it's the glory of man. You know, it's talking about that. Um, The position of the woman in terms of timing and creation, when you go back to Genesis... Is, is very clearly to reflect the husband's authority, the husband's leadership. It tells us the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. In other words, it was the man who was first created. That's what God set up. That's, that's the role of the man. He put that person in that leadership position. So he says in verse 8, for the man was not made from the woman, he was made from what? The earth, right? The dust. God supernaturally made him. But it says, but woman from man. Where did God make the woman from? I mean, I think some men think that he took the little bone or cartilage out of the little toe or something, you know, the way they treat women, you know, they want to keep them under their foot. That's not what God did. What did he do? He took them out of the rib. He took them out of the side of a man. 
It really designates partnership. It, it, it helps us to understand. In Genesis 2.18, it says, Then the Lord said, It's not good that the man should be alone. Women, you have to understand, this is, not a, this is really lifting you up, this idea. Basically, what, what we're saying in Scripture and what Scripture is saying is God created man, and guess what? He couldn't do it. Couldn't handle it on his own. That's what it says. It's not good for man to be alone. But what? I will make a helper fit for him. See, that's the role of the wife to the husband. It's a helper, a helpmate, someone who comes alongside of her husband and helps him. Why? Because he needs it. (laughs) He needs the help. I remember when we first got married. I didn't think I needed any help. Now I don't know what I do without my wife. Can't even get up and get dressed without my wife. It's ridiculous. You know, it's like, well, what happened to me? I used to be independent. I'm still pretty independent, but still. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of learning to lean into this and say, you know, when I come home and my wife says, well, do you want me to get you something to eat? I'm learning now to say, sure, go for it. And I go in and turn on the TV and relax in the chair until the dinner's done. I mean, you can ask my wife five, ten years ago. Be like, ah, I, got, I got it. I got it. I'll do it. Well, what was I doing? I was not really helping our relationship by that kind of attitude. Even though I was thinking, well, no, I don't want somebody to serve me. You know, I mean, she's had a long day too, so I, I'll just do it myself. I'll do it for myself. But what was I doing? I was taking away the purpose that God had designed for her. And in a way, it was offensive. I didn't know that. I didn't think of it that way. But see, the time of God's creation tells us a lot. And the purpose of creating the woman was for the benefit of the man. Why? Because he needed it. I mean, you stop. Those of you who are married and husbands, go home this afternoon and make a list of everything your wife does for you. I mean, really make a list. Stop and think about it. There's probably a long list of things. And it's not that the women should just serve the man and that's it. We're not saying that. There's times when the husband needs to serve the wife as well. But then he gets down here to this tough verse. (laughs) And we're going to go quick through this because I have the slightest idea what it's talking about. I'll just be honest with you. I've read and read and read, and everybody's got different things. It says, verse 10, That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. (laughs) What? Paul, what are you talking about? Angel defilement. Um, There's two options. Either they're fallen angels or they're holy angels. I can give you that much. If they're fallen angels, the, 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 the emphasis here is really on, I guess, what we'd call sensuality. All right, There's certain verses in the Bible that talk about wives who fail to stay under the umbrella of her husband's leadership, and they become more susceptible to being tempted 
in areas of sensuality or even de- demonic temptations. Uh, one verse is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 11 to 15. It says, But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And then he says in verse 14, for I would not, for I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households. And then he says this, which is interesting, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. Why? Because, well, in this case, it's talking about widows. They lost their husband. And rather than get remarried, they thought, I'll just go it alone. And pretty soon they're straying down a road after here, Satan, it says. Um, or Second Timothy 3.6, it says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So that's if this means fallen angels. If you leave your husband's umbrella of leadership, you're more apt to be um, make yourself available to that. If good angels, then it's the issue of service. It's the issue of, of serving the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who shall inherit salvation? Um, their ministry is hindered by a wife's, I guess you could say, submission to her husband. You know, sometimes, even in ministry, you, you find pastors who are married, they have a wife, and um, their wife is not submissive to their husband. And it does not create an atmosphere of ministry within the church. It's not good. And usually they end up washing out because of that very fact. So that's my best I can give you on that. Uh, then he talks about mutual dependency, verses 11 to 13. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. In other words, you know what? When you're married, you're, you're kind of codependent, you might say. You're, you're relying on each other to help each other out. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. So it's kind of like God isn't, Paul is trying to point out here that, look, this is not a pretext that all women are to be down in the dirt and man to have their foot upon them. That's not what he's saying at all. He's proving just the opposite. He's saying you have a mutual dependency, a joint experience, but both of them are in the Lord, it says. First uh, Peter 3, 4, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, honoring, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You're in this together. Um, and then verse 12, we see a, a biblical explanation. He talks about our dependency upon each other is clear from the fact how we came into the world. The one who is behind it all is God. God is the one who's in charge of everything. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, it says, From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so we can't say, well, man came from God, but woman, no. We're all from the same image of God. 
So there's a mutual dependency there. Uh, he talks about an, ob- an obvious evaluation there. He says in verse 13, look at he says, look, judge for yourselves. In other words, just use your common sense. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? In other words, husbands, do you want your wives out there advertising that she's single when she's not in front of a bunch of men, even if it's in a synagogue or a church? No, you wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want that at all. It's obvious. And then verses 14 to 15 here, we see the kind of natural decision. It says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. Now, once again, you got to look back here at culture, okay? We're not saying men can't have long hair, all right? Um, the only thing I would say probably, if you're married and your wife has, long, or has shorter hair than you, you might have an issue. Okay, I'm not going to have that problem ever. So I don't have to worry about that, you know. But, um, you know, back in the, even in the 60s and the 70s, you know, you had a lot of the hippie movement, people were wearing long hair, and, and you know, a lot of people within the church made that an issue. Um, you know, there's, there's probably um, something to be said about that because, that whole scene in our culture really spoke of what? It spoke of rebellion, right? I mean, that's what it spoke for, whether you agree with it or not. I don't think we should get in into measuring how long a man's hair is. I mean, as they walk in the door, I think that's ridiculous. But here he's just saying, just naturally, women, just naturally, just given nature, they're going to have generally longer hair than men. That's just what happens for, for a variety of reasons. And it's kind of a conclusion it's drawn there in the covering of a woman. It says her hair is given to her as a covering. Um, the word therefore is anti or instead of is what it means. And so, you know what? God has graciously covered her head with long hair. And, um, you know, that way at least she has something up there. And that's, that's kind of where, where that is. Where that's going. And then here, lastly, in verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, all right, in other words, you love a fight, uh, you're looking for something to fight about, uh, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What's he saying? He's saying, look, don't quabble over these matters. These are not issues of whether you have a hat or not. He's not talking about that. I pray to God that you see the, the relevance of the marriage relationship, the male and the female, the husband and the wife, what Paul is speaking um, really out of this text. It's not about women wearing hats in church or about men having long hair. It's about that, that whole idea that men and women within marriage have different roles and even within the church. And so we don't want to draw conclusions from a verse out of context that would possibly mean something Uh, that the word does not intend. Well, next week we will continue on. Um, But with that being said, let's just read the next few verses before our uh, communion time together. And it really speaks to this. Paul goes on in verse 17. You can follow along in your Bibles. He says, but in, and this is in preparation for our communion time, but in the following instructions I do not commend you, 
Because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. Like I said, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? In other words, you don't come here to gratify your fleshly appetite. He says, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I was faithful in his ministry is what he's saying. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Notice that word, himself. You don't look to your neighbor, you look at your own heart. Then, and, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and even some have died. This was a very, very serious thing. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, and he had a lot of other things, he says, I will give you directions when I come. Father, we pray this morning as we desire to um, have the Lord's table now, as we ask, Lord, that you would just uh, help us to do exactly what your word says, to examine our own hearts, to examine our own lives. And Lord, if there's anything in there that shouldn't be, Father, it's as simple as coming to you. The Bible says that we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and you're just to, con- to cleanse us of all of our sins and uh, uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, what a promise that is. And so, Lord, there's no reason for us to come to this communion table um, in a shameful way. And Lord, this is for believers, this time of communion. It's for those who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so I would just ask, if you haven't done that yet, if you haven't put your faith in Christ and trusted him as your Lord and Savior, then just simply not participate, because it really doesn't mean anything to you yet. But if you have trusted him, then you're welcome to participate fully in our time together. And so, Father, we just pray that as we examine our own hearts and pause and reflect on your goodness and your grace to us, that you would help us to remind ourselves of all that you've done on our behalf through Christ and through Christ alone. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.